This is episode 79 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, How Recruiting by Tech Companies Alienates Women. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show. And thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I am really excited to have a researcher on the show today. I met uh, Dr. Allison Tracy Wynn through an article first on Fast Company and then uh, found some more work that she'd done through Sage Publications. And I'll introduce her. She's a research associate with the Stanford VMware Women's Leadership Innovation Lab. She received an MA and PhD in sociology from Stanford University and a BA in English from Duke University. Her research examines organizational policies and practices designed to reduce gender inequality. She's also worked as a leader of inclusion and organizational change strategies with Exponential Talent LLC, Diversity and Inclusion Consultant with Forche Inc., and Human Capital Analyst with Deloitte Consulting. So welcome to the show, Allison. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, it's kind of funny. The Fast Company article said, basically, their title was something like, this is why women don't want to work at your tech company. (laughs) And your title for the uh, Sage publication was a little bit more measured. It said, uh, puncturing the pipeline, do technology companies alienate women in recruiting sessions? And in your uh, research to investigate that question, you and your associates actually attended a whole bunch of recruiting sessions for tech companies. I think it was something like 86, something like that. I think it was 84. Uh huh. Well, I was very impressed that you all sat through those and then reading the observations that you had were, were really fascinating. I think sometimes we wonder if, oh, it's just our perception of something. Oh, we just saw it that way. But really, you have a pretty overwhelming abundance of information in, in subtle ways in which the tech companies are kind of diminishing their chances of appealing to women. So why don't you start off by talking about that a little bit? Sure. Um, yeah, so I, I think you, you've really nailed it, that um, it was sort of an overwhelming array of very subtle things. Uh, well, some some more subtle than others. But, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, it's we, we started with the knowledge from existing research of the types of things that alienate women, particularly in science, engineering, math, and technology fields. And so we went in armed with that knowledge of sort of, you know, there's been a lot of, especially experimental studies, so lab experiments showing the types of environments that make women feel uncomfortable or unwelcome. And so our question was, well, do companies reproduce these environments in their recruiting sessions? Uh I think recruiting is is a really fascinating point to study because we often hear from tech companies oh, you know, there's nothing we can do um, to get more women uh, in our company. There just aren't enough women majoring in math and science fields. There just aren't enough women major, er, uh, you know, interested in applying for our positions. Mm -hmm. And recruiting is this point where the educational pipeline and the company pipelines meet. Uh, So it's, it's a point where companies can actually impact who is interested in applying for their company, but it's, it's an earlier point than most companies are thinking about. Oftentimes when they think about the pipeline, you know, they think that the educational pipeline is sort of separate and fixed and there's nothing they can do about it. And who applies is sort of something that's out of their control. And then their control starts at the hiring process. You know, it starts when they, um, you know, choose candidates to interview and they choose candidates to bring into the company. And that they certainly do have control at, at those points too. But um, recruiting is this fascinating area where, you know, you're, you're still, candidates are still in the educational pipeline, but companies have a chance to make an impact. 
and companies are making a first impression. And, you know, often I, I tell recruiters when I talk about this research that from the very first moment that candidates see you, from the from just walking into the room and what's the swag that you are handing out and what's on your t-shirt and um, who are your presenters and what are they doing and what are their roles, from that very first interaction, candidates are trying to build a picture of what is this company? What's it about? What's its culture? What would it be like to work here? And could I be successful here? Is this a place where I would fit in, where I would thrive? And so I think that was sort of all of those things um, were going into the research when we first went in. And then to answer the the, the sort of key question of the article, do companies alienate women? Uh, we found yes, uh, in many different ways, which, some of which you've, you've mentioned, companies are creating an environment in their recruiting sessions that we know from existing research alienates women. Yeah, I think what kind of struck me is this constant refrain that I always hear about, oh, well, you know, we just can't recruit them. And then at the same time, we have this quote unquote talent war going on. And so your research inside these really elite institutions where very important companies are coming to recruit and then your kind of your litany of things that they've done, which, you know, the research would indicate is not helping their cause. All those things really struck me. And I want to read a little bit, a little quote here from your article about this issue of women in tech. So the the article says, while 40% of men with STEM college degrees work in STEM jobs, only 20% of women do, which is remarkable. I mean, not to editorialize, but we already have a dearth of women going into STEM fields, although I guess that's changing, but now only 26% of the ones with degrees are actually going out and working in STEM jobs. Wow. Right. It's really, you know, it's a leaky pipeline at a lot of different points. And I think that that stat really shows that, that, you know, you can think of the pipeline leaking at a lot of different points. And even women who have majored in STEM degrees, who have you know, gained that expertise and gained those skills and have spent that time in college that we're we're still losing them at the point of hire. Yeah, exactly, which is a good point. So I'll continue. Even as women's share of the college-educated workforce has increased over the past decade, women's underrepresentation in STEM fields has remained relatively constant or even decreased. Okay, so that answers my question about that. This disparity, this is what caught my eye, this disparity has important implications for lifetime earnings. Women in STEM jobs earn 20% more than do comparable women in non-STEM jobs. So here we have it. They're educated to move into these high-paying fields, and they're not. It's a good point that STEM jobs are are high-paying and high-powered, and it's of concern to the broader gender wage gap. It's concern to broader inequality if women are not going into these jobs at the same rate as men. Yeah. The other thing that you've mentioned is that you based your observations of these sessions on existing research. And I'll just point that out and then we can start talking about some specifics. So according to the social psychological research, certain environments can lower women's interest and sense of belonging, uh, yada, yada. Factors that make for an environment chilly for women are, and here we'll get into some specific, sexually explicit references, stereotypic images, references to cultural knowledge, hobbies, and behaviors that are culturally associated with men and masculinity, being excluded from conversations, or having one's contributions ignored, and also low, obviously low numbers of women. Okay, so let's talk about what you actually observe during these sessions related to that. Sure. So we saw many of those things. <laughs> um, yeah. So we saw uh, sexually explicit references. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing the list that you got here. Uh, uh, we saw uh, examples of that. Um, presenters would put up sex- sexy images of women or pop culture references that involved, uh, you know, women in in sort of yeah sexually explicit ways. Um, and uh, stereotypic images, uh, they would use cartoons, or I remember one company used an example of uh, Popeye and Olive, if you remember from the old cartoon, and uh, they put those images up on the PowerPoint slide, and they said that Popeye um, was representing the beefy data plane, 
and Olive was representing the slender control frame. And so in that example, they were actually using gendered bodies to communicate tech terminology. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, references to um, things associated with men, hobbies, behave, you know, beer pong, beer fridges were some of the things that came up among other things. And then being excluded from conversations or having one's contributions ignored. We saw that happening among the presenters often that if they're uh, oftentimes the, the men were doing the bulk of the content presenting and the women company representatives were handing out the food, passing out T-shirts. And even when there were women engineers present, so people who presumably had the expertise to weigh in, they were often excluded from the discussion. If they talked, they would be interrupted or you know, they would just be sitting on the side and not really engaging in the discussion. So, and then, as I mentioned, low numbers of women to begin with. I think it was something like 84% of the sessions, the primary presenters were men. So, uh, you know, we, we were seeing all of these things really in the sessions. Tell us particularly about poor Mai, if I'm pronouncing <laughs> her name right. That one really struck me. Sure. Yeah. It's a pseudonym anyway, but yes. So, cause we, we, we conceal the identities in here, but sure. yeah, yes, I know she was in an unfortunate <laughs> position. So she was uh, an engineer at the company. And in fact, if I recall, she was the same level uh, and same position as one of the men presenters who was also present. Yeah. But, that, I think that's the paper says that. Yeah. Yes. Um, but he answered way more questions, uh, student questions than she did. And every time she tried to jump into the conversation, she was interrupted by the other two men who were present. And, uh, you know, she would try to jump in, try to weigh in on, on a student's question and kept getting interrupted and kept getting excluded from the discussion. And the, I, one of the men presenters made a really big deal about introducing the other one and, and making, you know, sort of um, highlighted his role. And then she was sort of an afterthought, even though they were the same position. Yeah. And so reading it, it you know, it just, of course, I wasn't there and perception is everything, but it just seemed amazing to me that that wasn't obvious to the participants. <laughs> and maybe it's not obvious to the presenters, but I wonder if it's obvious to the audience. And what, what do you, what do you chalk that up to this kind of blindness? It's a good point. I think, you know, some of these things become so routine that it's hard to see. I remember once when I presented this work to uh, members of tech companies, and there was one person in the audience uh, who thought to herself, okay, there's no way my company is doing this, these kinds oh, of things. Mm -hmm. um, and especially, I, I know it's one of the questions you have in here is, uh, did, did someone really make a reference to pornography uh, and prostitution? That seems really extreme. So she, she was in the audience and she thought, gosh, there's no way my company is doing something you know, so egregious in our recruiting sessions. And she went back to her company and sat through their session. And wouldn't you know it, they had a pornography reference in their oh. recruiting session. And she hadn't even noticed. And this was someone who is a diversity and inclusion, you know, professional. And so I think sometimes these things become so routine that we don't notice. Um, I use the metaphor of, you know, that a fish doesn't see the water it's swimming in, mm -hmm. um, that these things become really routine to us. And I think also, they become especially invisible to us if we feel that we fit or align with our existing culture. Um, if we feel we fit in, then it's hard for us to see the culture around us. It's really when you don't feel you fit in that you you feel that sense of dissonance and alienation, I think then it becomes uh, more obvious. So I, I think there there is, you know, as you said, some blindness about this. And I think also you know, it's, these things can be subtle in the moment. I know, uh, you, you know, you talked about how it, it seems so obvious, you know, once, once it's laid out in a paper like that, but I remember being in that session and I had to pay attention to realize, oh, she's actually the same. She said her, her position is the same and that, you know, they've been there the same amount of time and, you know, but I had to kind of pay attention to what she was saying, uh, which was hard because she was, <laughs> she kept getting interrupted. Um, I think, you know, if you weren't paying close attention, it would seem like she was just more junior at the company, that the men had more to say, uh, that they had more expertise. You know, that was sort of the, the, the gist or the tone of it. And you really kind of had to pay attention to what she was saying to realize, no, she's, she's, she actually has the expertise and is trying to weigh in. Yeah, that's a really interesting observation. And it makes me think too, it's one of those things of if everyone is doing it, you don't realize what's wrong with this picture. Right. So if every session you go into, it's always the women who are the greeters, who get you settled, who get you food and take care of you, and the men are working on the presentation equipment, and then they present. You don't even realize, you know, until your eyes are open that, hmm, this is a gendered thing happening here. Otherwise, it just seems like, oh, this is how it always works. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> 
there are a couple of things that do get more subtle. Um, but I guess we should first talk about the gendered swag, if it's not <laughs> if it's not too painful, because that's also a uh, really quite noticeable. The whole thing about I'll show you my data if you show me yours. And yeah, what I found really odd about that and and sort of funny is that the swag, especially and as well as the images on the slides, it seemed like something that was taken straight out of some of these social psychological experiments that were yeah, done. Right. And I remember, you know, talking with one of the authors of one of those papers, and they're often criticized for their lab experiments being too artificial. Mm-hmm. Uh, that oh, you know, who would actually have you know t-shirts like this or um, you know images like this in in a in a corporate company context. Uh, and so it was, it was kind of funny. I, that in particular, that I'll show you my data. If you show me yours, I remember, uh, there was in one of the lab experiments, same kind of like a t-shirt that said, I code, therefore I am. And that was Mm -hmm. one of their examples of something that might be alienating. And I think the example I saw was probably possibly even more alienating than that because, um, you know, it just, it, it has the sexualized reference as well to the, um, the song, you know, I like big butts and I cannot lie. Yeah, I like I like big data and I cannot. Right, lie. exactly. Yeah, so I I think it was really noticeable to me that the swag, uh, you know, it, it seemed like it was taken straight out of one of those one of those studies, but it was real. Yeah, the in comparison, the code therefore I am seems fairly mild. I know that's what I thought too. I was like, gosh, you know, the example they used, which you know uh, is criticized as being artificial, is even more tame than what's really happening. Yeah, it's a funny thing. We'll get into more of this subtlety now. And one of the uh, notes that I'd made to you was, you know, what is driving this? Like, is if you present a culture that appears to be okay for women, does that mean somehow it's not as appealing to men? Like, you kind of have to go to this edge. I like big data and I cannot lie because, you know, otherwise you're not sending messages to men that, yeah, this is a cool bro place to work, you know, that, yeah, we're all men here. And so we have this kind of swag. I mean, I was just wondering, is that part of the message that, yeah, we're deliberately being exclusive? We're deliberately excluding women so we can communicate what our culture is really like. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked this because I I often get, you know, a a question like this where um, I remember one person asked, do I need to design a pink and a blue recruiting session? You know, do I have to have one Mm. for women and a different one for men or or should I be talking about nail polish and, you know, hair in my session? And so I I, no. Uh, the the answer is that actually what the best approach would be is broadening your recruiting session to appeal to both men and women. And there, um, you know, there are certain things that will appeal to everybody, like uh, emphasizing the impact of your company. What is it that you do? Why is what you do important? What impact does it have on the world? Especially for candidates coming out of school, looking for a job, everybody wants to feel like they have impact. Everyone wants to feel like what they do is going to make a difference and be important. And so that's something that's going to appeal to a common human drive (laughs) to just, you know, be doing something valuable. And so I I think right now what companies are doing is really only appealing to a narrow group of men. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of examples in the study where um, they're not just alienating women, but they're actually alienating many men. There was one session where eight out of 14 women who were in attendance got up and walked out of the session early. They just, they left. And about a third of the men left early too. Uh, So, you know, it's having an outsized impact on women, but many men were uncomfortable in that environment too. It's not appealing to all men. It's appealing to a narrow group. And so really what companies need to be focused on is not targeting any particular narrow group, but broadening their session and doing things that will appeal to, um, you know, a, a diverse set of candidates. Yeah, I was so glad that you guys tracked that as you were in the sessions about how many people just got up and walked away. Because, I mean, there could be situations, you know, if Obama's speaking next door, they want to go listen. But usually if somebody gets up and walks out of your session, that is kind of an indication that you're, you know, you're not, you're not riveting their, them there in their chairs. Right. Well, and we only had really a few measures of student reactions. I mean, one of the questions that I get from from this research is how do you know that the women were feeling alienated? And mm-hmm. we didn't, you know, we didn't want to disrupt the session or, you know, make ourselves announce our presence by, um, you know, surveying students or interviewing them. Mm-hmm. Um, and students often go to more than one of these sessions. So as we were doing these observations, we didn't want to kind of interrupt the the process. 
But, you know, so we were basing, as I mentioned, you know, we were basing our assumptions on previous research and those lab experiments that show that these, these types of things alienate women. But the few measures that we did have of, of how students were feeling or reacting was um, who asked questions in the session mm-hmm. and who got up and walked out early. Uh, so, those, the, you know, we, we, we were able to sort of monitor that. And we found that in sessions with the more positive behaviors that I mentioned, the more welcoming behaviors, women asked questions, I think it was about twice as often as, as in the sessions without these behaviors. So we could see that companies had a way of measurably increasing the engagement of the women in the room simply by altering their behaviors and the images they were putting up and um, the way they were representing their, their company. Yeah, I also thought that was fascinating, this whole issue about asking questions or not. And one more thing that that you went into, and again, this just seems so eye-opening about where these rec- some of these recruiting sessions go. Is that, and I'll sorry to read your own writing back to you, but this this discussion about highly technical competition, and I've seen this in play. But so you write in this way, many companies Q and A sessions devolved into a highly technical competition between a few men, leaving the women and most men, silent and stranded. Such Q&A sessions paint an image of a competitive company culture that many students, particularly women, may not seem to fit. And then uh, my editorializing here, you know, I've seen this happen where highly technical guys get into this kind of, you know, macho um, jostling amongst each other. But it to me, it still feels like overall just poor recruiting. <laughs> and and do you think, I mean, what do you chalk that up to? Why are we, why are these companies even allowing men who act like that toward each other even be the recruiters? Yeah, I, I agree with you that it's just poor recruiting in general. I think that's a really good point that a lot of what we're recommending to companies is just better, more effective recruiting. It's not, you know, uh, something really special about gender. It's just sort of like, how do you recruit? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I mean, obviously, with an eye toward toward opening uh, the pipeline, but um, yeah. So I think that's a really good point. And why do they even allow men? I think, you know, a lot of the time, the presenters that we saw didn't seem to have a whole lot of preparation uh, when it came to recruiting. Uh, I think, hmm. often, you know, these people are very busy. It's hard to find people to um, come and recruit. It takes time. So I, I, for whatever reason, it, it wasn't highly scripted. I mean, a lot of the time, the worst comments were made sort of off the cuff as a joke, uh, maybe, you know, to try to entertain the audience or seem funny or cool. So I think part of it is, is that it's not like these are scripted things, you know, where, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of oversight. Um, I think a lot of these comments are just being made by individuals who are trying their best to engage the audience. And, I, you know, I think also when you get a lot of, men and particularly white men doing the bulk of the presenting, then they're thinking about what they find funny and cool and relatable and, you know, what they would want to hear about. And so a lot of the references are just, are just appealing to, you know, a narrow audience of people like them. Um, so I, you know, I, I don't think it's an intentional thing where companies are, are trying to appeal to a narrow group. I, you know, at most, maybe companies think that this will get them the, the best and the brightest, or, you know, that having this highly technical competition uh, means that you're going to get, um, you know, sort of the, only the best applying. And to that, I would say that, you know, at this stage of the recruiting process, you really don't want students, particularly students at elite institutions, you don't want students self-selecting out of your talent pool. You don't want people saying, okay, I'm not going to fit into that culture. That's not what I enjoy. So I'm, I'm going to apply somewhere else. You want to be able to make the determination through the interview and hiring process about what are their qualifications? What are their skills? Are they capable? Can they do this? You want to be the one making that call. You don't want them uh, making that call for you and perhaps taking themselves out of the pool when they would actually be uh, really qualified. That's really, that's a very interesting uh, point because I can imagine some guys saying, oh, well, you know how they go. We just want the rock stars. So we, we're going to find the one guy in this room who can hold his own and, you know, fight back and make the points. And, and I think your comment is exactly right. This is not the stage at which you want to do that. You can, you can figure that out later, who the really tough guy is, the, you know, the genius in the group. Well, and there's also the most talkative one is not necessarily the most qualified. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, and to that point, so one another observation that you had is some of these presentations are just poor presentations because they go into such extreme technicality, you know, very busy slides and too much information. And, you know, typically we would just say, well, those are just poor presentations. But again, it begs the question, it's like, well, are you trying to test your audience? What, you know, what's happening here? Right. I, I did get that feeling in a lot of the sessions that they were trying to test the audience. Some I think are just badly designed slides where you know, the text was just too small to read, the diagrams, you know, the arrows were pointing and it was hard to follow. Um, but others I did, you know, there was one company I remember that put up this giant block of text that was, uh, it was code. And um, I mean, it, it was tiny, tiny text, took up the entire slide. And when they put up that slide, the student next to me looked up and just went, Jesus, you know, it was like this overwhelming massive code. And the presenter said, this is the kind of thing we create at our company, you know, clearly trying to be intimidating with this, you know, this is what we do here. Yeah. So strange. I used to be uh, sent to recruit at universities after I was hired by a subsidiary of Bristol-Myers Squibb. And I don't remember particularly being coached. But my goodness, it, our attitude to those sessions was completely different. I mean, we, we really wanted to appear to be friendly. And I mean, maybe that's the difference between working for Big Pharma and working for a tech company. But I, if that's true, I have to believe that's somewhat misguided. I agree. I know. And, you know, it was my experience uh, as a management consultant was different, too. Uh, when I went to recruiting sessions as an undergrad, you know, and ended up working for Deloitte, uh, I don't remember them being like that. So, you know, I, 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 it may be tech specific. I, it's funny. I wanted to, I, I wanted to do a study comparing tech to other industries and didn't get around to it, but I do think that would be really fascinating to see, um, you know, what elements of this are tech specific and what elements are found in other, you know, elite high status industries. Yeah. And I guess one thing I'd be curious about is we do hear a lot of complaining about working at tech companies that they are kind of inhumane places and does that, you know, is there, does that carry on from the recruiting sessions that, yeah, it does re lead right into these kind of hostile cultures where people end up being pretty unhappy? Yeah, it's funny you ask that because I've gotten the question before of, isn't it unfair if companies change their recruiting sessions to be these really welcoming, diverse places, and then people get there and find out that the company culture is actually hostile and awful, you know, shouldn't be, isn't it good that these companies are being honest about, you know, their culture, isn't that better than, you know, uh, making this one hour, you know, wonderful recruiting session that doesn't represent them? And I mean, my response to that is, yeah, companies should be changing their internal culture too. I mean, it's mm -hmm. not, you know, you're not going to fix everything just by having this great recruiting session. But, you know, I mean, I get you have to be doing all of it. I mean, so, you know, um, ideally you would have a welcoming recruiting session and a welcoming culture. Right. I mean, it is funny, right? It's like, okay, well, if you go to this recruiting session and there's basically a big message to women that says, you know, stay away, you'll be miserable here. Well, that, that, that's the truth. So <laughs> at least it's honest. Yeah. <laughs> so to go back to some of these subtle, subtle things that you observed, and, you know, it's getting down in the weeds, but it's the kind of thing that really, that I pay attention to. And um, you talked in the paper about a male presenter uh, explaining that he has a better gender ratio at the company's LA office compared to its Silicon Valley office. And then instead of using that point in some way that he might've used it, instead he said, since he works at the LA office, yeah, I had no girlfriends at the other place, but now I'm married. And it just, it's one of those, you know, slap yourself on the forehead kind of things where, as you say, he, he thinks he's being funny and it's the kind of comment that would appeal to him but to many of us in the audience, you know, it sends this really bizarre message of, oh, yeah, please come work at my company so my colleagues can get married and, <laughs> and hit on you. And I, it's like, what? <laughs> you imagine a woman in the audience would, would kind of just tilt her head a little at that comment. Yeah, for sure. It, it's not the right message that, that you want to send at all. 
Well, I got excited when he first said, oh, we actually have a better gender ratio in LA. And I thought, oh, wow, you know, this is a chance to actually highlight, you know, that the company cares about, um, you know, recruiting women and making a welcoming place for women. And then he, he just sort of painted it as a, an opportunity to court your coworkers. Yeah, that's not what professional women want to hear. I mean, I, I'm not I saying hope. that people can't meet and marry at work. I just, you know, but to sort of have that be your takeaway point of the better gender ratio uh, is is troubling. And then the other kind of shocking one that you told was of a male recruiter introducing a female colleague, and presumably he meant this in a in a jovial way, but he said, well, I'll let you tell the story. Yes. Yeah. It was really shocking. It came out of nowhere. Um, he was introducing a female colleague and he said, uh, this is Kathy. She's really nice. She cries easily. I said it, you know, just <laughs> sort of deadpan like that. And I, I mean, I was just sort of blinking in surprise in the audience and she laughed and kind of played it off. But um, I, it was just such a strange way to introduce a, a, a work colleague at a recruiting session. I mean, it just I, it, it had no context to it. I mean, it just it really came out of nowhere. It was very strange. Very strange. And yet uh, somehow the story has a feel of, of truth to it, right? That he's just speaking off the top of his head. He hasn't thought this through. He, he thinks it will be kind of amusing to say such a thing. And, and maybe that's also how he sees her. But, right. but there's so many things wrong with it. <laughs> so it's definitely not a recommended way to introduce a colleague, I, I would say. Yeah, I do think he was trying to make a joke. Uh, and I, I mean, the audience wasn't really laughing. <laughs> I know we didn't. Really yeah, right. I'm sure we're all so shocked, right? It, it definitely seemed strange. So there were a couple of other things, not, um, not necessarily so gendered, but one that struck me was the talking about lack of sleep, staying at the a- a- office all the time, this kind of quote up all night culture. And I just recently did a podcast with Alex Pang who's uh, written a book about the four-day work week. And not that this is, again, necessarily a gendered thing, but many men and many women are thinking when they choose their company about work-life balance, especially if either uh, sex is thinking of having children. And again, it had this strange message in it to me that those aren't the kind of people that we're appealing to. And I... I was wondering if you thought that was deliberate or not. You know, I think it it may even be, and I don't have research to back this up. I'm just sort of going off of, you know, things I've read in, in, in you know, news articles and such. But I wonder if it's even a generational gap because the I think the sort of old school tech culture, uh, which Marianne Cooper wrote an article about and other people have written about, was definitely, you know, the long hours culture, the overwork culture, uh, you know, you and professional work in general is moving in a direction of more and more and more hours and more and more and more time spent at your company. And I think younger generations want more balance. They they indicate that that's important to them, both men and women. And I think, as you mentioned, you know, we've historically thought about this as a women's issue, but increasingly, uh, you know, in research that I've done and others have done, uh, men really want this too, that they really do want flexibility and they really do want time off to be with family and to have other, you know, other other things that they do outside of work. So I do, I think that when they're trying to advertise their company recruiters, uh, you know, or, or, or company representatives may be thinking along that kind of old school lines of this, this will make our company seem more prestigious and, uh, you know, more valuable but that they're not realizing that there's a disconnect there and that candidates may be looking for something else. And I also, I'll add that I think um, this up all night culture is transforming a little bit to a sort of always on culture um, that that Leslie Perlow and others have written about. Um, And I think in tech companies, we see this as, and I, I wrote about this a little in the paper, but we see this as sort of companies advertising a lot of their perks so we have on-site masseuses and haircuts and, um, you know, squash courts and just everything you could want to do um, recreationally or personally, um, you know, we have on-site so you never have to leave. 
And I think that's a way of trying to appeal to the sort of younger generations of, you know, it's not that we're going to work you to the bone. It's that we're so much fun that you want to be here all the time and you never want to leave. Um, but this is going to be concerning, particularly to candidates who do have outside responsibilities, uh, children or elder care or, or various other responsibilities where they really can't be at work all the time. Mm-hmm. And they really do need to be home sometimes. So I, I think it's companies not realizing how their message is going to be heard by different audiences. So asking you to speculate again, it, it occurs to me as we're talking that there is this, this idea of the prestigious tech firms are really extreme in this way, right? That they have certain characteristics, the whole competition and uh, staying up and bro culture and all this. Do you think that some of the companies think that they should be recruiting that way because that's the way some of the more prestigious firms recruit? I mean, do you you think that's in play at all? I I mean, I think that companies are, are trying to recruit the best. And so they're engaging in practices that they think will get them there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's, they don't know what the best practices are. I mean, there isn't a whole lot of research on what makes recruiting effective, at least not that I know of. Mm-hmm. So I think companies are, you know, as, as we, we mentioned, you know, rec- uh, uh, presenters are trying to think about what would appeal to them. These are highly sought after students. And so these companies are in competition with each other to get, get these students interested. And so they're just, they're trying to think of like, what would be funny? What would be fun? What would be cool? What can I say that will entice students to want to work at my company? And I think they're not realizing how their message is heard or that they're only appealing to a narrow group. Mm -hmm. One of the things you talked about that also struck me is that there were so many references to video games or Star Wars or, you know, kind of this how pop culture and tech companies overlap. And it's it's pretty sad because, as you point out in the article, a lot of women have not come from that background. They didn't start playing video games at age six, and that's so much part of their their brain that they couldn't help except feel somewhat alienated by these by these kind of subtle references to all that. And I don't know, it made me feel kind of sad, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up because uh, one pushback that I often hear from this research is, well, are you saying that women can't be geeks? There are plenty of women geeks, you know, Mm -hmm. and I am not saying that at all. Um, I am a huge Star Trek TNG fan, excited about the new Picard show. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, um, so I definitely, women are geeks, um, but it's really, and and you you hit the nail on the head, I think, when you said that women are feeling they're not going to fit into this culture, that when they see these references in a recruiting session, they think this is an environment where I'm not going to be welcome, I'm not going to be respected, I'm not going to be successful. And so um, it's, they're sort of reading the room to try to figure out, is this a place where I can feel a sense of belonging? And for this, I'm really basing it on research that's done by Sapna Cherian. She did a whole series of studies looking at how geeky images and geeky references, um, make women feel. And she finds that women are less likely to uh, express interest in majoring in computer science. When these references and images are used, they're less, um, they feel a less of a sense of belonging in that space. So I, you know, I think, um, it's, it, it's exactly what you said, that women, when, when companies use these references, we know from research that women are systematically less likely to, to feel that they belong. It's interesting to think about how you're appealing to a candidate because of the work that they'll be doing versus letting them know what the culture will be like. And one of the things that I notice in the corporate world that I worked in is sports. And that was such a common source of conversation and socializing and uh, how much brain power it took up day after day in our work lives was talking about sports. And it's, it's kind of funny to think the equivalent of that in the tech world. And I, you know, I kind of played along. I wanted to be able to participate in those conversations. And I was interested in certain sports, not necessarily all the ones that my male colleagues wanted to talk about. But I would try and, you know, kind of find out about things. And it's interesting to think about it now from the from the standpoint of a tech company that women going in there, well, you know, now they're gonna have to find out about Doctor Who or whatever. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a good uh, parallel. <laughs> 
Yeah, funny. But but the but the point is, if you love the work, which I did, that's not that serious of a problem, right? You can overcome that. It's just that during the recruiting stage where you're trying to figure out if you're going to go into a company, sending that sort of message, whether it's about pop culture or sports, if you're constantly talking about that during a recruiting session, somebody may say, you know, I'm not really into that. And so maybe I shouldn't pursue this company. Right, right. No, and I think it's that. And I think these little things accumulate. So by the end of the session, you're trying to make a decision about, you know, do I want to apply for this company? Would I want to work here if I if I do get a job offer? I'm not even sure that women sitting in the room are aware of every single little thing that I called out. Um, but over over the whole hour, it accumulates to just kind of a feeling of, do I like this company? Would I be happy here? Uh, so I think, you know, company representatives need to be aware of these behaviors, not because any one behavior is going to make every woman in the room say, okay, I'm not applying here. But mm-hmm. it's that over time, these little, these little subtle cues accumulate and ultimately can drive bigger patterns. All right. Now I'm going to ask the million dollar question. And that is, when companies talk about how much they want to improve diversity in their company, and then you see such flagrant behavior like this, does it quest, does it make you question whether or not they're sincere? <laughs> I yeah, I get this question a lot, and um, I'm maybe I'm naive. I, you know, I spend a lot of uh, you know my time talking to people in tech companies who who really are acting in good faith and really do want to see more diversity. Uh, so I don't think that that, that comp- you know that this is purely lip service that, or that they're um, intentionally alienating women or that they have no interest in recruiting women. Maybe that's true for some, I mean, I'm sure that's true for, for some companies, but I think on the whole, and again, maybe this is naive of me, but I think that, that companies are sincere when they say that they do want to increase diversity and inclusion. And um, either they don't know how Mm-hmm. or they aren't willing to make the bigger changes that are required. So I actually like this recruiting study because um, I think this points to a series of very simple and, and inexpensive changes that companies could make. You know, it just change what you're doing and saying over the course of an hour. <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. that's like actually a really easy change. So that's one of the reasons I like this study. Um, but I think if you're really serious about diversity and inclusion, then you often have to make bigger changes to your company. So how you hire, how you promote people, how you evaluate them, uh, you know, where you're sourcing candidates. These are sort of bigger procedural changes. And I think oftentimes companies want to just add on a diversity program where they say, okay, let me just change like one little thing or add on a thing to my existing structure. And then, um, you know, this problem can be fixed. Um, so I do, I think it's a combination of not knowing the changes to make or not being willing to make some of the bigger changes. Well, that's right. I mean, if it's a cultural change, that's not just hiring a diversity and inclusion person. And I think that is a mistake that a lot of companies make. But that is a, that's a very interesting point. But first thing you can do is just have somebody review your recruiting session materials or the setup of the room and who does what. That's not that hard. That would be a, a good, yeah, a good. Right. Good yeah, we actually posted um, so on a on a site called DNI in Practice, um, which I'm happy to send you. I don't know if you have a place for resources, but um, we we um, Tara and I co-created a checklist based on this research. It was mm. it was essentially the checklist that we used when we were you know as the research guide when we were studying these sessions. But it's a it's a tool that companies can use to diagnose bias in their own recruiting sessions. So and it leads you. Through exactly all of these things. How many men, how many women are presenting poor content in your session? And what are the types of, you know, do you have these types of references or those types of references? Um, you know, the geeky references or, um, you know, it kind of leads you through each of these items. And so companies can use this to try to help diagnose and fix bias in their recruiting sessions. Oh, that's really great. Yeah, I'd love to include a link to that if if that would work in the show's notes so that uh, the listeners could use that. Oh, I think that's really great. And also, I presume there are things in there also that just make for better presentations, which I'm I'm all for that, right? Better, better communication and how we uh, share information with each other. Yes, I, I love that you made that point because I do think that, and this is true with so many things in the diversity and inclusion space, uh, that, you know, a lot of the recommendations we make are things that are going to make 
life better for everybody. Yeah, right. <laughs> not, it will help, you know, uh, improve the gender gap, but it also will help everyone. Uh, we have some other projects that we do on performance evaluations. And a lot of the recommendations we make around performance evaluations are things that are going to make sure the evaluation process is clearer and more transparent and more fair for everybody. Um, that it's really about, you know, making sure you have uh, clear objective criteria and uh, things that are not really gender specific. But if you have an existing gender gap, it's going to help address that. Yeah, I think that's right. It's it's about using exclusionary language that would exclude or images or whatever, you know, the, the cultural references that would in- exclude lots of people, not just women. And I, I think that's a really important point that this is, especially for performance appraisals, such an important <laughs> uh, tool. As my listeners know, I harp on about performance appraisals a lot. So yeah, definitely music They're to my very ears. Important. Yeah. Now, so these are kind of the easier fixes. When we talk about big, more cultural changes to make organizations more welcoming to women, especially uh, as they get into the childbearing years, I was curious if you, if the organizations that you work with ever seek to uh, engage you as a consultant to, to look at their workplaces. Yeah, well, I, I, um, as you mentioned in, in the intro, I've done some consulting work with Exponential Talent and Forche, and before graduate school, um, I consulted with Deloitte. Um, so I've, I've worked as a consultant before. The, the lab where I work is not a consulting firm. It's a research I see. lab. Okay. Uh, right. But, um, but we do partner very closely with companies in our research. So um, we, we really kind of do these collaborative research projects where um, together with the companies we work with, uh, we kind of identify pain points or areas of concern. So uh, the performance evaluation studies, you know, those came out of, you know, working with these companies and, and having them identify that that was an area of concern for them, an area where they felt, uh, you know, the current state, it was really subjective and um, hard to do these evaluations and an area where there are gender gaps, but as I mentioned, also sort of, you know, they were struggling for everyone, right? That everyone felt that the process wasn't as good as it could be. And so we we often have these, you know, collaborative agreements with companies. But yeah, I've also, uh, you know, separate from my work with the lab, I've also, I mean, obviously informed by my research, but I've also done uh, consulting with uh, those other firms. Yeah, I love that idea. There's an organization called Science for Work, and they attempt to bridge the gap between the researchers and the practitioners. And I really feel as though there often is a gap there. I mean, the the work that you did in this study is so specific and so clear that I can't help but think, wow, this would be really useful. And yet, you know, other than the little article in Fast Company, how is this information really being put in front of uh, recruiters and tech companies. And so yeah. I, I love this idea of, of, of getting that information back to the, back to the corporations. Yeah, it's such a great point. And it's, it's one of the big areas uh, that we have at the lab. Um, uh, we, we do research, but we also do, we call it translation. So translating research for a broader audience. And it's mm. one of our core goals at the lab is to um, also do this translation. And so, yeah, the fast company, piece, you know, that's part of it. Um, We have, if you look on our website, we have a number of tools and resources. Um, So there's uh, videos um, that we have. There's, you know, sort of, I think we called it a C-bias, block bias. So we have these tools um, that can help companies see and block bias in in different processes. And then we also have, as I mentioned, our corporate partner program where we partner with companies doing research and also we have sort of meetings a few times per year where we present kind of cutting edge research to companies and, you know, sort of have different topics and um, have, have good discussions. So that's, so we have a few different ways that at the lab where we do translation. And I, I, you know, just on a personal level, I totally agree with you that I think this is really the sort of the next wave of, um, you know, that we really need researchers partnering closely with practitioners and co-creating these solutions and testing solutions, I think that's, you know, up until now, research has often been in a silo. And I think that's really where we need to go next is having, you know, this, this research that is 
on the ground and close to the concerns of, of what's actually happening. And then, you know, testing solutions, really seeing what works. In sociology in particular, we spend a lot of time talking about inequality and what causes it and what keeps it around. And um, we spend far less time talking about solutions. So I think that's really where research needs to go next. Oh, that's great. No, I'm a huge uh, enthusiastic supporter of there because, yeah, I definitely see a lot of work done by academics that just goes into the void. <laughs> and, and meanwhile, a lot of times companies are using tools that have not really been borne out by science or mm -hmm. any very serious work, trivial studies that wouldn't hold up if you put them under under scrutiny. And so you have this massive disconnect between companies doing kind of sloppy I don't know what you'd call it, sloppy, I don't know, interpretation of something. Meanwhile, the academics are off in their own world and never the twain shall meet. Yeah, no, I think you're totally right. Well, uh, you started to talk a little bit about the lab, and I'm going to have to check more of that out. But I'm wondering if you'd like to tell the listeners more about how they can follow your work or get in touch with you or whatever you'd like to share with them. Sure. Um, so I, let's see, the lab has a website, um, womensleadership.stanford.edu. Um, so that's where you can check out more about the lab. Um, my own personal Twitter handle is at Allison T. Wynn. Um, so Allison T-W-Y-N-N. -N. And I should mention that Allison is just with one L. Uh, so Allison, A-L-I-S-O-N-T-W-Y-N-N. -N. Uh, that's my Twitter handle. And then the lab's Twitter handle is at SV Leadership Lab. That's for Stanford VMware Women's Leadership Lab. Um, and then I also have a website, which is just allisonwin.com. Again, Allison with one L um, and Win W-Y-N-N. And um, so those are just, yeah, a few of the ways you can, uh, you know, stay posted on our research and, and stay in touch. And thank you so much for the work that you're doing. I think it's really important. And this paper was so interesting for us. And thank you for coming on the show. Sure. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. In keeping with the new year, we'll be changing our format somewhat as the show has evolved. We'll continue to address work-related problems, but in our second year, we'll be going beyond just an advice show to talk about work trends, labor laws, economics, interesting companies, as well as pranks, bad bosses, and more screw-ups at work. If you have a question about a work-related issue or a comment about the show, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through the website discreetguide.com. That's D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T. And at that website, you can also sign up for The Pergola, a digital publication that comes out every other month, and get information about training programs, books, consulting sessions, articles, jokes, and resources, all for us to work better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces. And thanks for listening. New shows will be available every Tuesday and sometimes Friday. Tune in so you can hear more about trouble at work.